Good morning. Uh, our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. I'll give you a second to find it in your Bibles and your apps. It's slightly easier than Ezra. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Richard. Good morning, everyone. You guys look great. Um, kids, you're welcome to make your way downstairs. Enjoy your lesson. Come on through. Let's do it. Love it. Uh, it's going to be home. Uh, I was in L.A. last week um, preaching at Foothill, no, two, week, two Sundays ago, I was at Foothill um, Church, one of our supporting churches. Uh, visiting them and giving back to them is good, great to be there. Um, they send you love and blessings and, and grace. Um, that relationship is really important to us um, as we continue to do what we do, and we want to see more churches planted. So they do like a, a campaign every autumn uh, to essentially raise a million dollars to go towards uh, church planting efforts in, in Ireland. So, um, amazing, isn't it? And, um, like, pretty spectacular. So, good to be there. Good to see Luke and Sue and the kids, and, um, but good to be home uh, in this magical wonderland. Um, happy first Sunday uh, of Advent. Um, again, thanks to Alice and the rest of the girls and the team for uh, decorating. Um, this is one of my favorite Sundays of the year, not just because there's a, a Christmas tree, and you all know how much I love a good Christmas tree, uh, but because today officially begins uh, that journey towards Christmas Day. Um, and so if you're not familiar with the tradition of Advent, let me just remind you again. I know Thomas kind of gave us a good introduction. Uh, let me remind you what it is and why we observe it. Um, Advent is the four weeks of preparation leading up to Christmas Day, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Um, we, we don't jump straight to celebrating Christmas Day stuff here um, through the month of December. We first journey through Advent. Um, we enter into the season of waiting, of anticipation. Um, so just like Lent prepares us for Easter, Advent prepares us uh, for Christmas. Um, I know I say this every year, but I love Christmas Day. Um, I love everything uh, that, that goes with it, literally nothing that's Christmassy, I don't love, except for the shopping, that's my wife, and um, I don't enjoy uh, going into town, but I love, I love uh, the lights, I love the trees, I love um, reindeer, I love fuzzy socks, I love 
selection boxes, like give it all to me. Um, I am on board with it all. Um, some of you, on the other hand, uh, maybe say, and it seems like Christmas, like shop fronts go up earlier and earlier every year. Um, Halloween's over the next day, selection boxes. And um, if you're one of those people, let me just tell you you're wrong. Um, <laughs> let's go, like earlier and earlier, it's okay. Um, I'm, I'm that kind of guy. Um, I love it, I always have. Uh, but I can also say that thanks to the, the family I grew up in, uh, at the heart of my love for Christmas is, has always been the excitement about the, the mystery uh, and the, the miracle of the birth of Jesus, the Son of God coming into our world. Um, God in the flesh, God coming to be with us as one of us, um, to be near us. How exciting is that? Like, how mind-blowing uh, is that? Um, and the thing I love about Christmas um, is the build-up to Christmas. Um, like, like Christmas, it, it might not be quite as special without the, the, the build-up to it, right? Um, the, the anticipation of what's to come, um, that feeling that, that something amazing is coming, uh, something incredible is coming. Something I've been waiting on is near. Uh, that thing I want, that thing I need is coming. Um, and actually, I think that, that feeling, that season of, of anticipation um, is something our secular culture has kind of gotten right in a way. They've obviously commercialized it and, and capitalized it, but uh, that we still, we know that, that feeling from our early childhood that, that, that something amazing is coming. That, that, that longing, that waiting, that anticipation. Um, but those, those Christmas feelings, they, they find their root in the incarnation. Um, they're kind of knockoffs, if you will, of the first advent. Uh, that feeling that something incredible is coming. Um, it, it's not a modern, a relatively modern invention with Christmas trees and, and Santa Claus and carols. This anticipation is something that the people of God have, have been feeling for thousands of years. Um, as they have waited the arrival of the long-promised Messiah. And so every year during Advent, we enter into that anticipation. We enter into that season of waiting, uh, uh, of hope, of longing for something or someone incredible to come. Um, God's people in the Old Testament, they waited for the arrival of their Savior, um, and He came, and now we continue to wait for His coming again, His second Advent and, and, and we do that, we wait in that way by looking back and by remembering not only his first arrival, but the anticipation and the waiting that came along with, uh, with the, uh, the longing for him to come. Um, and so we continue in the longing. We, we continue in the waiting as we anticipate his coming a second time. Um, Christmas, it's the celebration of Christ coming uh, into the world. That's what the word Advent means. The word Advent means coming. Uh, it's this anticipation of His coming into the world. And so in this season, we focus on the meaning of the coming of the Son of God into the world. This one who's called Emmanuel. He's God with us. Uh, God, this divine mystery of God putting on human flesh and dwelling with us as one of us, doing, doing something that no one in this room, if given the opportunity, would ever do, which is leaving behind the, the glory of heaven to come to earth. Um, you ever thought of it that way? I can, I can understand, hey, none of us would die on the cross to save someone who hated us, but have you ever thought about that, that no one would ever leave the riches of heaven, the glory of heaven, the, the perfection of heaven to come to earth and become human and, and weak? moving from heavenly darkness to a heavenly light to earthly darkness. 
given the opportunity, no one would do that, to enjoy the, the perfect glory of heaven, the, the perfection of heaven, to sit on the heavenly throne, uh, to have enjoyed that perfectly satisfying union within the Godhead for all of eternity, and to leave that behind in a way and, and enter into the darkness of earth. And um, we're talking about the second person of the Trinity. This is the one who spoke creation into being at the beginning, and he continues to hold it together with the word of his power. This is the one that John's gospel says was the word in the beginning, was with God, was, was God. He is stooping low, putting on human flesh, our weakness, and dwelling amongst us. It's amazing. Why? Why did he come? Um, well, that's exactly what we're going to explore over the next four weeks, um, why He came. And um, we've given that, this series that title, The Son of Man Came. Um, uh, hopefully, everyone kind of received and watched that short video that Andrew uh, put together that tried to explain that Son of Man title. I'm not going to go over that again, but basically, it, it was Jesus' favorite title to, to use uh, uh, for Himself anytime He was describing His vocation. And He would use that title anytime He was talking about those with whom he came to be with. He calls himself the Son of Man. And in Aramaic, it actually sounds like a man like me. Jesus is telling them, I'm like you now. I'm, 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 like, I'm flesh like you. I'm, I'm human like you. But he's more than, than just human because at the same time, he's divine. He, he's God in the flesh. And that's actually what they would have thought of when they heard that title, Son of Man. It's this divine title that's talked about in the book of Daniel. Daniel has that vision of one who, who came as in the form of a man, this, this, this human who came before the ancient of days, before God, and this human is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that never passes away. This is the, the offspring of Eve that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3 who would come and crush the head of the serpent. This is God in the flesh. And the Messiah come from heaven to earth to redeem His people, to defeat Satan and sin and death and establish His reign forever. So the title, the Son of Man, it's, it's God that is a man, God that has come to us. And, and through the Gospels, uh, Jesus uses that title for Himself, um, and basically He tells us why He came when He uses this title. And the first one that we're going to look at today is Luke 19, verse 10, where He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let me pray first one more time. And Father, we, we thank You for your, your promises that You are faithful to, and that, that promise that You made all the way back in Genesis 3, that, that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. And that, and that promise that You continued to make all through Scripture, the promise of a King, of a Savior, of a Messiah, who would come and gather your children again. Um, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd open our hearts this morning to that truth, um, the beauty of the incarnation, um, and our desperate need for Jesus. And prepare our hearts, Lord, um, not just for celebrating Christmas Day, but to um, continue to wait, continue to hold on until you come again, Jesus. And we pray that in your name. Amen. Um, so Luke 19, hoping, hopefully, you're, hopefully you have your Bibles um, open to, to Luke 19. Um, in verse 10, Jesus says of Himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Um, so just a bit of context, uh, 
You'll notice Jesus says that line at the end of that pretty famous story about Zacchaeus. Um, he's, he's essentially expounding the exchange that he just had with Zacchaeus um, and, um, and the surrounding people in that scene. He's also expounding at the very same time the, the wider reason why he came to earth. Um, so, so think of that line um, as this umbrella reason for all the other reasons to kind of come under. Un, under. This is his main objective for coming to earth. This is his sole purpose that he was sent by the Father to seek and to save the lost. Um, so think of the scene with Zacchaeus as a microcosm. It's this, it's this little example that explains uh, the wider, the greater reason why Christ came to earth. Um, this coming, it means his, his coming from somewhere, this coming into the, earth, into the world, um, and it covers his entire earthly life. He was born for this purpose, to seek and to save the lost. Um, and so this, this microcosm, this example of the story of Zacchaeus, um, I'm guessing most people in the room are familiar with Zacchaeus. Most of you sung the song uh, growing up. Um, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, and the, the, the setting, which isn't included in the song, which might be news to you, is in Jericho. Um, it's the same Jericho, the same place that was mentioned in the, the Battle of Jericho in the Old Testament book of Joshua, uh, rebuilt, obviously. Um, and Jericho was built on this oasis. It was built, it has lots of water, uh, which meant lots of vegetation, lots of trees, including sycamore trees, uh, hence the tree that Zacchaeus climbs in this story. At verse 1, Jesus enters into Jericho. Uh, verse 2, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and we're told that Zacchaeus is this chief tax collector. Um, you might be familiar, but tax collectors were really despised within the Jewish community. Um, like, who likes paying taxes today? But um, the, these tax collectors, they were despised because they basically look, worked for the oppressor, Rome. Um, it was their job to collect taxes from the Jewish people, which would then go to Rome, which would then be used to further oppress the Jewish people. So these tax collectors were despised. Um, they were marginalized in the Jewish community. Um, and Zacchaeus, we're told, is no ordinary tax collector. We're told he's a chief tax collector. So he's, he's worse than an ordinary tax collector. He's at the top of this pyramid of injustice. He, he, he's not only... Um, uh, furthering the oppression of his own people, but he's benefiting off of it. So in the eyes of the Jewish people, Zacchaeus is a traitor. He's despised. He's an outcast. Um, and the scene we're given here is, is this Jesus of Nazareth entering into the city of Jericho. And remember, Jesus is incredibly famous at this time, right? Um, he, he's known for his teachings. He's known for his miracles. Uh, and we're told wherever he goes, a crowd follows. Uh, and that's the case here in Jericho. And verse 3 tells us that Zacchaeus, he was, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Um, notice it doesn't say he just, he's just seeking to see Jesus. Um, he's he just simply wanting to catch a glimpse of this celebrity, maybe to be able to say, hey, I saw him with my own two eyes. Anybody have a story like that? Um, I was, me and some bandmates were at uh, a music festival in Austin, Texas, and uh, Michelle Obama was there giving a talk. And uh, her husband, I don't know if you heard of him, Brock, is, he was the president at the time. Um, and so we were walking along a road, and it was closed off because, like, the first lady's motorcade was coming through. And so we thought, hey, we're here. Let's wait and see it go past, uh, catch, a gl catch a glimpse of her. Um, I saw her shoulder, which is pretty cool. Um, 
that, that's not what was happening here. With Zac- that's not his motivation. Uh, we're told he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Who is this Jesus? I, I've, I've heard a lot of stories about this man, about this teacher, about this healer. I wonder, is he who he says he is? Is he who he claims to be? And here's this, this, this marginalized, hated, small man uh, with no real friends, no real community. But he's heard about this Jesus who befriends sinners, who dines and parties with sinners. I wonder, could that be true? And so he's seeking to see who Jesus was. That might describe you here this morning. Um, maybe you're here because you're curious about who Jesus is, about who his people are. And um, maybe, maybe you are hurting this morning. Maybe there's something missing in, in your life, and you've heard stories about this Jesus, the, the stories about his people, and you're climbing a proverbial sycamore tree, and you're seeking to see who Jesus is. Can I just say I'm really glad you're here? Jesus is, is glad you're here. Um, hopefully you don't find the crowd here today like the crowd for Zacchaeus who despised him. Um, hopefully this is a welcoming place for you. Uh, hopefully this is, is a place that you can come and, and bring your doubts, um, bring your pain, and climb a tree and see who Jesus is. Um, and this morning we're going to see three things about who Jesus is, uh, three things about why he came into the world. And the first point we see in the story um, is even though Zacchaeus is, is, is the one in the tree seeking to see who Jesus is, it, it's not really that Zacchaeus is searching for Jesus, but that Jesus is searching for Zacchaeus. And that's our first point. Jesus came to seek. And, and that's the way the story is actually told. And there, there's no coincidence in this meeting. Uh, rather, it's by divine appointment. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, this Jesus is one who wields the power and the authority of God on earth. He, he, we see Him calm storms with a word. He, he heals sickness. He raises people from the dead. He, he reads thoughts of people before they speak. And you see that on display here, His divinity. Jesus, He, he calls this man by name, although by all um, appearances the two have never met before. He says, Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down from that tree, for I must stay at your house tonight. Um, I must stay at your house tonight. That word must, it means it's necessary. It means it's inevitable. Um, he's given us this sense that this is the real reason he's here. Zacchaeus was there at his station by the appointment of Jesus. I must stay at your house tonight. That's why I'm here. That, that word stay, it doesn't mean to kind of pay a visit. It means to abide. It means to dwell. It means to live. I'm telling Zacchaeus, I'm here for you. I'm here to make a home with you, to accept you. Although Zacchaeus is in the tree seeking to see who Jesus is, it's really Jesus behind it all. He's the one who is doing the seeking. He is the one who's doing the calling, the pursuing and which is exactly what he says in verse 9 and 10. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree. He receives Jesus' invitation joyfully. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And in verse 10, Jesus explains all that's just happened. As it's this explanation for his sole purpose on earth as well. And he says, for the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek. He's on this mission to search us out. He he is the pursuing God incarnate, the pursuing God in the flesh, the Son of Man seeking. And that's the story of the Bible. Uh, The story of the Bible is God pursuing His lost children. from From the garden, in the garden, pursuing His children in their waywardness. Where are you? Searching them out. And in Egypt, pursuing His enslaved children. Through the desert, pursuing His wandering children. And we've been studying in Ezra, he's, He is pursuing His exiled children. And the pinnacle of God's pursuit is in the incarnation. This is God putting on the flesh, the Son of Man coming into our world to pursue, to chase down, to seek after His lost people. And Turn a few pages back to Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, Jesus tells this kind of short trilogy of parables uh, to to reiterate that point. Um, You're probably familiar with them. The first two are the parable of the the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep. Um, Interestingly, he tells these parables in the context of befriending sinners and tax collectors And Pharisees and scribes, basically the religious elite, grumble and say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Exact same uh, grumbling as uh, they give to uh, about Zacchaeus. And so he tells them these parables, uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. They're given as rhetorical questions. Um, The parable of the lost coin, Jesus asks, what woman having ten silver coins if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently for it until she finds it. That might be familiar to, to some of you, but this woman has lost a tenth of her money, um, so she, she turns the house upside down to find it. Uh, she's searching in the closet, under the sofa, under the bed, looking everywhere until she finds it. So so notice she doesn't stop, she doesn't give up on her search until she finds it. There's no other option but to find the coin. She's so desperate to find it, maybe even a little frantic. Have you ever felt that that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach when you've lost something valuable or maybe sentimental? And the parable of the lost sheep, it's similar, but there's even more desperation Again, it's given as a rhetorical question. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? That one you might not answer quite as quickly, right? Um, because it's not you've lost one of ten, you've lost one out of a hundred. And um, this is one sheep out of I think would be a pretty large flock, at least for one person to, to shepherd. Isn't it funny that Jesus asks these questions as if they're a no-brainer? He, he asks them as if the answer is, obviously, they would do that. Of course you would leave 99 to search for one. But most people, including myself, would think the opposite is more logical. The, the guy still has 99 sheep, right? Let the one go. Cut your losses and, and stay with the 99. Why leave to go after one and leave the 99 in the open country unprotected? Aren't you, aren't you increasing your chances of losing more sheep if you go after the one? 
But no, Jesus asks the question as if it's completely reasonable that the shepherd should leave the 99 and go after the one sheep. And when he finds it, he throws a party. He, he, he celebrates because he found his lost sheep, just like the woman does with her coin. He is utterly desperate to find that lost sheep. So desperate, it's so important to him that we might even accuse him of being a bit reckless. It's not logical. It's not wise. It's not prudent. It's so unreasonable to leave the 99 to search for the one. And there's a worship song written about this, and the chorus goes, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And there's a, there's, there's a few blog posts that went around kind of questioning the, the usage of that word reckless when referring to God's love. Um, Christians love writing a blog post, right? Um, and in the case with most kind of rationally written blog posts, you can kind of understand that angle. Like, aren't you arguing that God is calculated? Uh, God is, is purposeful in His actions. He's all-knowing. How can He be reckless? But when you read those lyrics of that song, which was written in light of this parable of the lost sheep, I think that language is appropriate and, and you should sing that song. And because it captures what Jesus is saying when he says, I've come to seek and save the lost, and I'm going to go any means necessary to find that lost sheep. In, the context, in that context, the word reckless means that God's love defies all human categories of how love ought to operate and express itself. God loves sinners in the most unconventional and seemingly unsophisticated manner possible. His love is contrary to how we typically love one another. When he leaves the 99 to go after the one, God isn't concerned with what it might cost him in terms of his reputation. But that's exactly the, the, the context of that parable, right? Jesus chose to welcome in to his presence, into his company, sinners and tax collectors, and he knew the Pharisees were watching him. He knew that they would mock him and revile him and sling mud on his reputation. He knew they would say, why love people like that? They are outcasts. What can they possibly do for you in return, Jesus? Have you no regard, Jesus, for how this might come back to bite you? We see he isn't concerned with the consequences that might come his way when those he loves doesn't love him in return. God's love is anything but cautious in that way. How many times do we love cautiously? How often do we keep our distance from sinners, from the marginalized in our society because they don't measure up? Because they're not meeting God's standards of holiness. Maybe you back away, maybe even roll your eyes and keep your distance from the LGBT community. Surely Jesus wouldn't draw near to them. And Jesus would say, I beg to differ. I'm throwing caution to the wind. I'm not concerned with what this might do to my reputation. I'm not concerned with what they can offer me in return. You see, to seek out the one and to leave the 99 seems so disproportionate. For heaven's sake, Jesus, let the silly one go. Isn't that what they deserve anyways? You have 99 others here that need your attention, that need your care. Pastor Sam Storm says, a love that isn't reckless might reason like that, but not Jesus. His love is of a different order. 
His love isn't conditional. His love doesn't say, if you first love me, then I'll love you. God's love doesn't operate in that way. Storm says, it is reckless in the sense that he loves those who have done nothing to warrant or justify his affection. He loves those who can't earn it and certainly don't deserve it. Every time you try to squeeze God's love into a human mold for what is acceptable and reasonable, he shatters it. Jesus says, I've come to pursue, to seek, to chase down that which I love. That's the first point. Jesus came to seek. And if you're still not convinced that Jesus is the main seeker in this story, uh, just step back and compare Zacchaeus's seeking of Jesus with Jesus seeking of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbs a tree to seek Jesus. Jesus comes down from heaven to earth to search him out. He's the Son of Man coming to the world, and He's on this mission to search us. And the second thing we see is who Jesus is seeking. Jesus came seeking the outcast. To put it another way, He's seeking not just that which is lost, but that which does not deserve to be found. He's not seeking that which is simply lost, but that which doesn't deserve to be found. And you actually see this in the third of those parables in in Luke 15, which is the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And we don't have time to go pull out all the fascinating details of that story, but at the beginning of that parable, it opens up with the younger brother, the younger son, asking his father for his share of his inheritance. And I'm sure you're familiar with how an inheritance works. It's, It's something that the person that is leaving you the inheritance, you get it after they die, so he's basically saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I, I, I have no regard for our relationship. Can I just act like you're dead already so I can get my share and get out of here? How much pain would that have hurt the father to hear that? Of course, he, 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 he goes, he squanders his inheritance. Eventually, he comes to his senses and he makes his way home. And, and again, we often think of that prodigal as, as, as finding his way home, but the story is actually told in a way that the father is the one who finds his lost son. And when he does find him, he does something unfathomable. He, he runs after him, and he throws himself on him, and he kisses his neck, and he throws a party for his son. He puts his best robe on the boy, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, and he says, bring the fatted calf and let's celebrate He says, for my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. See, he was was lost, and the father found him. He was dead, and he's alive again. Let's celebrate. But the son doesn't deserve this welcome. He doesn't deserve this celebration. He's completely rejected his father. He's brought shame upon his father But the father loves his outcast son anyways. Back in chapter 19, the Zacchaeus story, remember it's set in Jericho. And if you remember the the battle of the Jericho in in the book of Joshua, um, it's this first battle that the Israelites fought on their conquest of of the promised land. Um, And that story goes, uh, Jericho had these massive city walls, and they were to go and march around the city walls one time for six days, and then seven time on the seventh day, and then blow their trumpets, and then the walls would crash down, um, and they would destroy the city. 
And that was the judgment of God coming down on this entire city. And everyone died in Jericho except for one person and her family, Rahab. And who is Rahab? She's a prostitute. This outcast prostitute was the only person saved and then incorporated into God's family. This is the most unlikely person in that city was the one that God sought out and invited in. And here in Jericho, in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, just like Rahab, is the least likely to be saved. He's not a Pharisee. He's not walking according to God's law. He's an outcast. He's a reject. He's a traitor. But he's the one Jesus seeks out. He's the one Jesus shows compassion to. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must abide with you today. Jesus seeks the outcasts, which is you and me. He's he's not here for those who have their lives put together. He didn't come for those who have their lives mostly put together and need just a little help, just need a little polishing at the end. He's come for the outcast. Luke 3.8, Jesus says, "I've, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's you and me. No matter how well you think you have your stuff put together, Before Jesus found you, you were an outcast. You were the lost son who rejected his father. You were Rahab the prostitute. You were the traitorous tax collector that didn't deserve to be found. Jesus came for those who have no merit of their own. That's who he's seeking out. And which brings us to our third and final point. That he seek, what is he seeking these outcasts out for? To bring them salvation. He came not only to seek that which is lost, but to seek and to save the lost. That word lost means to destroy, to kill, to lose, to die, to perish. It's not those who have just gone a little wayward. It's those who are completely and utterly lost. Notice the grumbler, what the grumblers accuse Jesus of in verse 7. Jesus brings Zacchaeus down from the tree. I must stay at your house tonight. I'm here to abide with you. So he hurries down. He receives him joyfully. What beautiful salvation for this outcast. And verse 7 says, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. They said, He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That word sinner, it means an absolute moral failure. It's the same disgust that the Pharisees show Jesus in chapter 15 before those three parables. What's he doing welcoming that sinner in? That failure. Surely Jesus doesn't know who that is. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Sometimes we get the most poignant Jesus when he agrees with his accusers. And in verse 9, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, but he's really saying it for the others to hear. He says, Today salvation has come to this house since he is the son of Abraham. It's another way of saying he's because he's actually a child of God. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. They said, Oh, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Jesus agrees with him, but it's like he says, 
oh, it's much worse than you imagine. <laughs> I, I, I'm, not go, I'm, I'm going much further than just being the guest of this sinner. I'm bringing him salvation. He's not here simply to seek. He's here to save. He's here to bring salvation to absolute moral failures. He's not here simply to find that which is missing to God. He's here to seek and to save the lost. Again, that word law, it's, it's much more, gra- it it's, has a much graver meaning than simply being missing. It has this much terrible, more terrible sense of being ruined, of being given up to destruction. So Jesus didn't simply come to, to find those who are missing to God, but to save them from destruction. He's come to save them from something dreadful to come. which forces us to ask our question, well, what is that? What is Jesus saving us from? We're told explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we're told Jesus delivers us from the wrath that is to come. And the Bible can be really honest with us. Um, it's very blunt with us. It says, listen, because of your sin, there is a punishment. God is holy And your sin does provoke His holy anger. I don't know about you, but even though that stings to hear, um, if that's true, I appreciate the honesty of the Bible. Um, I I want to be told straightly, God is holy, and you were created to be holy, but because of our first parents' rebellion in the garden, that sin is passed down and passed down. Romans 6.23 gives it to us straight says the wages of sin is death, which we hate to hear when it's about us. But it makes sense, right? We live in a cultural moment where that's an offensive message to hear, but at the very same time, we live in a cultural moment that our culture is desperate for justice. We don't want to ignore the wrongdoing in the world. That's exposed injustice. Rape, slavery, racism, corporate greed. We demand justice for those things, rightfully. But Jesus says, the Bible says, keep digging, keep digging, and you'll find the root of all of those things in your very heart. And those wrongdoings do demand justice. And I know as soon as we start talking about wrath and judgment coming our way because of our sin, we get squirmy. Uh, But listen, this is actually what makes Jesus seeking and saving so beautiful and so powerful. Without it, cool. But but he's, he's seeking and he's saving Zacchaeus. It's only so beautiful, it's only so powerful because Zacchaeus didn't deserve to be saved from ruin. He, he, he actually was an absolute moral failure. Jesus doesn't, uh, they don't call him that, and he says, ah, don't call him that. He agrees with them. The lost son, when he, when he returned, he, he deserved to be rejected by his father because of what he had done. He, he deserved at least a good punishment, right? The law at the time said that punishment should be take him to the city gates and stone him. He should at least have to repay the inheritance that he lost, right? But no, the Father lavishes him with love and acceptance regardless of his failure. It's grace. 
Grace is what makes the story so beautiful. The good news of the Son of Man coming to seek and to save the lost, it's only so good because of the terrible news we existed in when we were lost. Jesus comes to seek and to save. He comes to deliver us from the wrath to come. He calls Zacchaeus down from that tree and he brings him salvation, not because of anything Zacchaeus did to earn it, but simply because he chose to shower him with his love and his mercy. How beautiful is that? He seeks and he saves the lost. That's the gospel message. He brings salvation to this sinner, to this outcast. He's delivering Zacchaeus from the wrath that he deserves. And he does, he does that not simply by finding him and writing off his wrongdoing. It's, it's far more beautiful than that. It's far more absurd than that. He actually does this by taking Zacchaeus' punishment on himself. That's the way that he saves him. That's the way that he's going to bring him salvation. And I, this story um, of Zacchaeus in Luke's gospel, it's just before Jesus makes his final entrance into Jerusalem. And, and it's there that you actually see the fulfillment of Zacchaeus' salvation. How does Jesus deliver Zacchaeus from the wrath, from the punishment that's coming his way? By taking it upon himself. He goes all the way to hang on that cross in Zacchaeus' place. Jesus bears the weight of the wrath himself. You see, when you see it in that light, when you see it in that way, it's then and only then does Jesus' statement in Luke 19.10 truly become beautiful. When he said he's come to seek and to save the lost, He's not saying, I've come to to find you and to ignore your punishment. He's saying, I've come to die in your place. What outrageous love. What glorious good news. Aren't you glad he came? Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're, you're in that proverbial sycamore tree seeking to see who Jesus is, And would you hear Jesus say this morning, hurry and come down. I'm I'm here for you. I'm here to abide with you. I'm here to bring you salvation. I'm here to offer you my grace. And it has nothing to do with what you have to offer. It has nothing to do with how much you've cleaned yourself up. I'm here for the outcast. I'm here for the sinner, for the sick. And so you need to be honest with yourself and with God. And if you're upset with the injustice in the world, that includes you. That's the the stinging message of the Bible, um, that we've all sinned, we've all fall short of God's glory, and we all need to be found. We all need to be saved by Jesus. And, and, And that looks just like what Zacchaeus does here. What does that look like? It looks like simply coming down and receiving Him joyfully. That's it. You simply need to to recognize your your lostness, your need of of grace, your need of a Savior, and simply receive Him joyfully. Receive His offer of salvation joyfully. We're actually in a better perspective than Zacchaeus, right? Because we know where Jesus goes in Jerusalem. We we, we see the cross. Um, Place your hope there. Place your hope in what He's accomplished 
on your behalf on the cross. He paid the penalty of your sin, and He's inviting you in to receive His salvation freely and joyfully. What glorious news. Or maybe you're already a follower of Jesus, and you're here this morning, and you just need that reminder of the gospel. You, you need to be reminded of, of what He came into the world to do for you. And you'll notice that Zacchaeus has a response he doesn't continue on in his ways. His heart has changed. And, and be careful here. Don't confuse this with a reason why Jesus saved this. He's not earning God's salvation here at all. He's, he's already received that joyfully, that that moment of salvation has come. And this comes after that. He's, this repaying of all those he defrauded, it's a response in his heart. This heart that's been changed from being found and saved by Jesus. What does that response look like in your life? Is there that continual response, that continual repentance in your new life in Christ? Are you walking in this new manner that's worthy of your calling? Or are you still walking in your old outcast ways? And church family... Um, he's come to seek and to save the lost, and, and he's not finished with that search and rescue mission. E even though Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, he sent his spirit to continue his pursuit, and his spirit lives in his people. His spirit abides in his people, and so we continue his mission of pursuing the outcasts. What does it look like to draw near to sinners in our lives? Are you like Jesus, who goes out of his ways to befriend the outcast? He's not afraid of what that's going to cost him or what that's going to look like on his reputation. Or are you more like the Pharisee who turned their nose up those who don't measure up? And Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. It's that gospel message uh, that changes us, every single person in the room. Um, would you stand with me and we'll pray. And God, we, um, we thank you for loving us. Uh, we thank you for loving us and we deserve it. We thank you for pursuing us when we were lost. Thank you when, um, when we had no pursuit of you at all. You can't be um, Jesus, thank you that you are the pursuing God in the flesh. And God, uh, that message would seep down into the hearts of our people here today. And Lord, for those who've never um, received you joyfully, uh, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that they recognize their need of you, your salvation joyfully. Lord, pray for those who, who, who've been following you 
um, remind them of the truth and the beauty of that gospel. That's all we have. Uh, That's all we preach every week because it changes us. May we be a gospel-shaped community of people who not only love you, Jesus, and not only love each other, but actually love our city as we join you in the renewal of all things. And that looks like loving some messy people like us. It looks like loving some marginalized people, some people that we don't measure up with and agree with. It's uncomfortable. Um, But may we apply the gospel in all of our lives, Lord. Um, What glorious gospel it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.